Hello, you guys, and welcome back to the fifth and final episode of Halloween. I don't know about you guys, but I feel like Halloween has completely flown by this year. I can't believe that we are already on the last episode. I really hope that you guys have enjoyed Halloween as much as I have, and I hope that we can continue this tradition on again next year as well. I'm interested to see which case you found most interesting because I know we kind of branched out a little bit on the cases that we usually cover here. So I'm really interested to hear what you think about what we've talked about these last five days. If you have no idea what I am talking about and this is just a random episode that you clicked on, we do something here on Killer Instinct called Halloween, where we post a true crime case every single day for the five days leading up to Halloween. So this is the last day of Halloween. So if you haven't checked out those episodes, you can go back and do that. I also want to say happy Halloween. I know Halloween is a little different this year, so whatever you're doing, whether that's hanging out with a small group of friends, having a social distancing Zoom party, or just having a night in with yourself, which is kind of is what I plan on doing, um, I hope you have a great time. I hope you have a great night, and I hope you stay safe. So with that little spiel out of the way, I want to talk about the case that we are covering today. Today we are talking about a crazy unsolved case. I wanted to get an unsolved case in for Halloween, and so this is the one that we are doing today. Today we are discussing the murders of Sue Sharp, John Sharp, Tina Sharp, and Dana Wingate. This case is also referred to as the Ketty Cabin Murders, so let's jump right on into it today. So this case begins with a woman named Glenna Susan Sharp otherwise known as Sue, which is what we will be referring to her as today. Sue was born on March 29, 1945 in Springfield, Massachusetts. Now, at some point, Sue married a man named James Sharp. James had been in the Navy, so because of this, the family was used to moving around a lot. Sue and James had a really toxic relationship, and James was known to be very abusive towards Sue, and the two of them lived in a house together in Connecticut with their five children. Now, in the fall of 1980, Sue decided that the abuse from James was too much, and she wasn't going to put up with it any longer. She didn't want her children to have to live watching their father abuse their mother, and didn't want James to continue abusing their children as well. So she ended up packing up her and her five kids' belongings and moving across the country to California. Sue divorced James and decided on going to Northern California because Sue had a brother named Don who was living up there at the time. Now, when she got to California, she ended up renting a cabin at the Ketty Resort, which is located in the rural Sierra Nevada community known as Ketty. Now, Ketty Resort is about a three-hour drive from Sacramento and a two-hour drive from Chico, just to give you some geographical context if you're familiar with the Northern California area. It's located in Plumas County, and Ketty's population is extremely 
extremely small. In 2010, their population consisted of 66 people. Yes, 66 people. Again, that was in 2010. I wasn't able to figure out what the exact population was when this happened. However, I did just want to include that to give you an idea of how small of a town we are talking about. So now Sue, who was 38 years old at the time, was living there along with her children, 15-year-old John, 14-year-old Sheila, 12-year-old Tina, and she had two younger sons named Rick, who was 10 years old, and Greg, the youngest, who was five. Now, the cabin was a two-bedroom cabin, so for six people, it was pretty crammed. John had the basement bedroom, and the rest of the kids stayed upstairs with Sue. So let's talk about the day leading up to the murder. At this point, Sue and her kids have been living in Ketty for about five months, and they were really enjoying it. The kids became friends with other kids their age in neighboring cabins. As far as Sue's experience with Ketty, there were reports that said that she did very much keep to herself. She stayed in her lane, she stayed low-key, and because of this, it caused a lot of people in the community to spread rumors about her. People aren't really fond of things that they don't like or don't understand or they feel aren't normal in their situation. So when something can happen that's abnormal and they can't really explain or someone comes in who isn't necessarily fitting the norm, rumors tend to happen and that's what happened in this case. There were rumors that Sue was dealing drugs or that she was a prostitute. However, Sue didn't care about what other people were saying about her. She was taking business classes at a local community college, and she was a really good student. She got great grades, and she really just focused on her schoolwork. Sue was way more focused on making a better life for herself and her kids rather than what anyone had to say about her. Now, on the day before the murder, on April 11th, 1981, at about 1.30 p.m., Sue had driven her and her daughter Sheila from Ketty to Ganser Park to pick up John and his friend Dana Wingate, who was 17 years old at the time, and bring them back to Cabin 28 their cabin. However, after they were brought to the cabin at about 3.30 p.m., the two boys, John and Dana, had decided to hitchhike back to where Sue had picked them up from in Ganser Park. The authorities believe that the reason they did this was because they had plans to visit friends. So the two boys hitchhiked five miles back to where they were before, and witnesses remember seeing the two of them in the city's downtown area and then later at a party in Oakland Camp, which was about a 13-minute drive from Ketty. So that is where the two boys, John and Dana, were that night. And as far as Sheila goes, on the night of April 11th, Sheila had made plans to spend the night at the family in the neighboring cabin, Cabin 27's house. Inside Cabin 27 lived the Seabolt family. This family unit consisted of James Sr., his wife Zanita, their two daughters, Alyssa and Paula, as well as their youngest, a son they named James Jr., who also went by Jamie. So Sheila had become pretty close with the daughters in the Seabolt family and had made plans to spend the night in their cabin on April 11th. She left her own cabin, cabin 28, at about 8 o'clock p.m., which left her mother, Sue, home with the two younger boys, Rick and Greg, as well as a friend of the boys, 
This friend was named Justin Smart, and he was 12 years old at the time. Tina was also gone for a little bit that night. She was also spending time with the Seabolt girls, however, returned back home to her own cabin at 9.30 p.m., so she did not spend the night at cabin 27. She just left a little after Sheila had arrived there to spend the night. When Sheila arrived to spend the night, she never knew that when she walked back into her home the next morning, her life would be changed forever. So now we move on to the following morning. It was April 12th at about 7 o'clock a.m. and Sheila woke up at the Seabolt's cabin and returned back home to cabin 28. Now when Sheila walked into the cabin, she was absolutely horrified to see the bodies of her mother, her older brother John, as well as John's friend Dana that had all been brutally tortured and murdered. Now, once Sheila walked in on this scene, she screamed at the top of her lungs and ran out of the cabin, running back to the Seabolt family where she told them what she saw. Now, the Seabolts didn't have a phone to contact authorities, so James, the father, had ran to the lobby or the check-in building of the Ketty Resort and told them that they needed to call 911 immediately because there had been multiple homicides. Now, that's when at about 8.05 a.m. on Sunday, April 12th, the co-owner of the resort, a woman named Jan Albin, contacted the authorities. Now, while authorities were on their way, James had actually gone over to Cabin 28 to see if he could find the other boys, Rick, Greg, and Justin. And he actually was able to find them unharmed physically, hiding in one of the bedrooms, and he helped them out through the bedroom window. However, even though the three boys were found, that left the question of, where's Tina? Now, Deputy Hank Clement was the first to arrive on the scene, and he said that when he walked into cabin 28, there was blood everywhere. It was on the walls, on the floor, on the bottom of the victim's shoes, on the bedding in Tina's room, the furniture, the ceiling, the doors, and the back steps. Investigators had found John first. He was closest to the door and he was found facing up with his hands covered in blood and tied together using medical tape. And his throat had been slit. Dana was found next. He was found lying on his stomach and it had been apparent that his head had been hit by a hard object multiple times and he had been manually strangled. Now, when it comes to Sue, Sue was found lying near the couch and she was on her side. She had a blanket covering her. However, underneath the blanket, she was seen without any clothes from the waist down. She was gagged using a bandana as well as her own underwear and that was wrapped with medical tape around her mouth. Now, Sue's injuries showed that she definitely did put up a fight because she had multiple defensive wounds on her. There was also an imprint of the bottom of a gun on the side of her head like she had been hit with it and her throat was also slashed. Authorities were able to figure out that all three of the victims had suffered blunt force trauma to the head from hammers, and all three of them also sustained multiple stab wounds. Now, there was a hammer found left at the crime scene, as well as a bent steak knife on the floor. A butcher knife and a claw hammer with blood on them were found next to each other on a small wooden table near the kitchen as well. As far as the rest of the crime scene goes, the sheriff at the time, a man named Doug Thomas, said that nothing in the home indicated forced entry. The telephone inside of the cabin had been left off the hook, and the lights had been shut off, 
and the drapes had been closed. Now, the police didn't even realize for hours after they arrived on the scene that Tina, Sue's other daughter, was missing. When it was discovered that Tina was missing, the FBI was immediately called in to help locate her. However, after about two weeks, the FBI actually halted their search because they said that the police from Ketty were doing, quote, an adequate job which made the FBI presence unnecessary, end quote. So the FBI ended up leaving and authorities noticed that Tina's belongings were missing from the cabin when they were searching for them. They noticed that her jacket and her shoes were missing, as well as a shoebox containing various tools were also missing from the cabin. Now, the shoebox didn't belong to Tina. However, authorities noted that that was something that was also missing. Now, what really stunned police in this case was the fact that three boys had remained untouched while the other three people in the house experienced brutal torture and murder. So police really wanted to talk to Rick Greg and Justin, because what would have left the murderers to leave them? Why leave any witnesses behind? Now, according to them, according to the boys, they initially said that they slept through the entire night and it wasn't until the next morning that they realized that something was wrong. Authorities also spoke to some of the neighbors in the resort, one of which who said that they remembered hearing muffled screaming around 1.30 a.m., However, when they woke up, they couldn't figure out where the screaming was coming from, so ultimately they ended up going back to bed. Now, in such a small town, this massacre obviously had a very big impact on everyone. According to Special Investigator Gamberg, he said, quote, Life changed dramatically in 1981 for this whole community. Everybody was suspicious of everybody and afraid of everybody else, end quote. Ganberg said that this murder made everyone in the town lock their doors at night. This was not the town that people used to do that in. Everyone always felt so incredibly safe, but after this murder, everything changed. A lot of people in the town thought that this murder could be linked to a ritualistic murder, or it could have been motivated by drug trafficking because remember, there were rumors that Sue was involved in drugs. However, all of these rumors were shut down when the sheriff came forward and said that there were no drugs or paraphernalia found in the home. In the beginning in the investigation, there was also a question of if these murders could have been done by Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. Could they have been responsible for this? And if you are unaware, these two men were a serial killing duo around this time. However, they also ended up being ruled out as well. So when talking about potential suspects, authorities actually looked into Justin's family at first, more specifically Justin's father. Now, I want to point out that there have been multiple reports that it's Justin's stepfather and not his biological father, but because of conflicting reports, it's not 100% confirmed which one is correct. Justin's parents were named Marilyn and Martin, and according to Marilyn, she claimed that she had actually found a bloody jacket belonging to Tina in the basement of her home. However, this was actually, there's no official record of this claim existing, and some resources include it in this case and some don't, but because there was never any follow-up on this and there's no official record of it, we can't really take it too seriously. But it's a very strong statement to say, to say that a missing girl's bloody jacket was found in the basement of your home. It's just something to keep in mind, but to take with a grain of salt as well. 
And then you have Martin, Justin's father, who said that a claw hammer had gone missing from his home. Now, the initial sheriff working on this case, Doug Thomas, stated later that there were enough clues and evidence that ruled out Marilyn and Martin having anything to do with this. However, something that kind of was just looked over at the time was the fact that Martin told police about the hammer that was missing, but that was prior to any information being released to the public. So because of that, it actually ended up making Martin a primary suspect, along with a friend of John's, which is a man named John Bodebay. I'm probably butchering that last name. It doesn't sound right, but I apologize if I am. Now, John was an ex-convict and had been known to be connected to organized crimes in the past. On the night prior to the murders, both men had been seen wearing suits and ties at a bar, reportedly acting somewhat strange. Authorities also looked into a man who fled Ketty shortly after the murders and moved to Oregon. However, they gave him a polygraph test, which he passed, so they cleared him as well. Police also went ahead and started talking to some of the neighbors of Sue, including the Seabolt family in Cabin 27, and multiple neighbors remember seeing a green van parked at Sue's cabin at around 9 o'clock p.m. However, they didn't get any license plate or any other description of the vehicle. Okay, we're going to take a short break, but we will be right back with more of the Killer Instinct podcast. Imagine an app designed to make you use it less. Seems a little counterproductive, right? Well, Apartments.com's Instant Alert feature works exactly that way. Instead of scanning rental listings a million times a day, simply set and forget your search to whatever you're looking for in a place and let Apartments.com do the rest. From pet-friendly apartments to balconies to in-unit ACs, Apartments.com's powerful search tools let you know when the perfect combination of features you're seeking is listed. So you don't have to power through rental descriptions one by one. With more rental listings than anywhere else, Apartments Apartments.com's instant alerts mean that you can spend less time looking for the perfect place and more time on just doing you. Apartments.com, the place to find a place. All right, you guys, welcome back. Now, as far as evidence goes, there was a lot of evidence at the crime scene. Authorities found a fingerprint and a lot of other potential evidence that could have narrowed down their search for their suspect. However, you have to remember this was in 1981 and this was pre DNA testing. So there wasn't much authorities could go off of at this point when it came to trying to narrow down their killer. But even if there was DNA testing, this case is known to just be a mess when it comes to the police work. The police were very, very unorganized when collecting the evidence in this case, and it really ended up hurting the case. So now I want to talk about Justin for a second. So Justin at this time, like we said, was 12 years old. So he was the oldest out of the surviving victims in the house that night. And like we said in the beginning, Justin said that he didn't remember anything, he didn't hear anything, he slept through the entire night and didn't notice that anything was wrong until the following morning. But when police started talking to Justin, 
he quickly changed his story of what he remembered. Justin's story changed from him saying that he didn't remember anything to him actually remembering seeing two men in the cabin that night with Sue. He said that one had a mustache with long hair and the other was clean shaven with short hair and glasses and one of the men had a hammer. Justin said that the reason he saw these men was because there was a loud commotion coming from outside of the bedroom and when he opened the door, he saw John and Dana entering the home after getting home from that party that they were at and getting into a heated argument with these two men that were with Sue. Justin said that this argument very quickly turned into a violent fight. Justin said that this is when Tina was taken out of the back door of the cabin by one of the men. So with Justin's description, police were actually able to now get a DNA sketch to work off of. They paired Justin with a sketch artist and were able to come up with two composite sketches of who they believed the men could have looked like. Justin described the men to be in their late 20s to early 30s, one standing anywhere between 5 foot 11 and 6 foot 2, having dark blonde hair, and the other between being 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 10 with black greased back hair, and both were wearing gold framed sunglasses. Now before we transition into anything else, I want to talk about what happened on April 22nd, 1984, which was three years and 11 days following the murders. There was a bottle collector who was walking through a campsite about 30 miles away from Ketty, and that is when he stumbled upon a human skull. This man immediately contacted authorities, and when they arrived, authorities found a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty surgical tape dispenser on the scene as well. Now, there were also reports of a phone call that had been made to authorities at the Butte County Sheriff's Office near where the remains were discovered. It was an anonymous phone call that identified the remains belonging to Tina. However, this call was actually never documented in this case, and the recording of this call wasn't even found until 2013 in an evidence box when this case was assigned to a new deputy. It just again is another example of the faulty police work in this case and then in june of that same year in 1984 the remains found were confirmed to be tina sharp so now with the remains of tina being found this turned into a quadruple homicide and police were now trying to figure out who killed sue tina john and dana so with that being said i want to circle back around to martin smart who really is the main person of interest in this case at this point there have been a lot of theories that revolve around martin in this case and because this happened so many years ago we're looking at close to 40 years at this point when this murder took place the exact accounts of what happened that night are not extremely clear however let's talk about how sue knew Martin. So Justin's parents, Marilyn and Martin, had taken the same business class that Sue was taking at her community college. Sue met them in this class and there were rumors out there that Martin was having an affair with Sue and simultaneously there were rumors that Sue was encouraging Marilyn to leave Martin. There were rumors that Marilyn would tell Sue about the abuse that she was enduring in her marriage by Martin, and this is something that Sue was very familiar with from her previous marriages. 
Martin was said to be very abusive towards Marilyn and was prone to violent outbursts. He was also involved in selling drugs. Martin had actually worked at the Ketty Resort as a cook, but had been fired just weeks before the murders. But regardless of that, Martin, Marilyn, and Justin actually lived in the Ketty Resort cabins as well, so that's something to keep in mind too. Now, like I said, on April 11th, the night before the murders, Martin and John, his friend, were seen at a bar. John was an ex-convict who was connected to Chicago crimes, and Martin was also known to be involved in drugs. Now, there have been reports that state that Marilyn dropped both the men off at the bar, but before they went there, they stopped by Sue's cabin and asked if she wanted to join them, which she declined. Now, this part doesn't make too much sense to me, because why would they ask her to come out to the bar with them if she was watching their son? If Justin is staying at their house, why would they go and try to get Sue to leave the house that their son is staying in? It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but you guys can let me know what you think about that. Now, according to Marilyn, she said that she left the bar shortly after dropping the men off and walked back to her cabin, which cabin 28 was on the way to her own cabin. So she passed Sue's cabin on the way to her own, and Marilyn said she got home and went to bed at around 11 o'clock p.m. on April 11th. Now, according to Martin, he said that him and John got back to his cabin around midnight. John had been staying at Martin's home with his family for a while until he was able to get back on his feet because Martin and John had actually met at a veterans hospital while Martin was there to help treat his PTSD that he had from serving in Vietnam. Now, weirdly enough, according to Marilyn, Martin's wife, she said that Martin had a really big problem with John Sharp, Sue's oldest son. Marilyn said that John and Martin would call Sue's oldest son names and called him a punk, which mind you, we're talking about grown men. Martin is in his 50s, so to have such great hatred for a 15-year-old boy is pretty strange. Now, after the murders, Martin and John, his friend, actually ended up moving to Nevada just to kind of start a new life, and they found work out there, and they never really looked back. And from there, Martin's relationship with Marilyn began to deteriorate because Marilyn stayed in Ketty, and Martin moved to Nevada. Now, Martin actually wrote Marilyn a letter, a letter in which he said, quote, I've paid the great price for your love and now I've bought it with four lives, and you tell me we're through. Great, end quote. Obviously, the great at the end of that was sarcastic, but a lot of people took this as basically a confession. Martin said that he bought Marilyn's love with four lives. Did that mean that Martin wanted to kill Sue in order to save his relationship with Marilyn if she had found out about their affair? Now, Marilyn and Martin did end up getting a divorce, and Marilyn got remarried. Now, Martin ended up going to a counselor for his PTSD. This counselor actually said that Martin had admitted that he, quote, killed Sue and Tina, but had nothing to do with the boys. Tina had to be killed because she had seen everything, end quote. 
Now, the counselor reportedly told this to the Plumas County Sheriff's Department, but again, there's no evidence of that statement ever being taken. And that's, again, just a really big trend and pattern in this case. This whole police work was such a mess. The sheriff in 2016 said, quote, this case is as screwed up as a soup sandwich. It's not about what was done, but what was not done, end quote. He actually compared the evidence found in 1981 to someone firing a shotgun loaded with evidence and then just shooting it out everywhere scattered. Now, this case was reopened in 2013, and they have treated this case very, very differently, and they have handled the evidence in ways that have given them solid leads. According to the sheriff, he says, quote, there are people locally who know more than they've said, and I believe we've identified some of them, and we know who they are, and we know where they are. And I have every confidence that they either participated after the fact or they have firsthand information. It's obviously a worthwhile pursuit. There is not an expiration date on homicides. And to the extent that we have surviving siblings and family members, it is our fundamental obligation to understand who did this and why. End quote. This statement was taken in 2016, three years after the case had been reopened. Now let's talk about what they have found since reopening the case, because it does kind of contradict the previous assumption that Martin could have been involved. So I'm interested to hear where you guys lie on this once you hear the second part. So in the same year, 2016, there was actually a hammer found in a pond near cabin 28, which mind you, the cabin had actually been torn down in 2004. However, the hammer was found in a pond near where the cabin previously was. It was located by someone who was using a metal detector in the area, and it had matched the description of the hammer Martin claimed that he lost. However, there has been no word released to the public on whether or not it is connected to the murder. Now, I think the biggest piece of news, and possibly a breakthrough since this case has reopened, police discovered a box of old evidence, and inside of this box was an audio tape that literally directed police to where Tina's remains were discovered. However, because this box was never opened, none of the initial investigators ever listened to this audio recording meaning that Tina could have been found a lot sooner had detectives did what they were supposed to do on this. Police have also said that with the new advances in technology, they have been able to collect DNA and are currently investigating six suspects, and that a piece of DNA found on the scene matches a living suspect. And this living suspect is not Martin nor John, because both of them actually ended up dying. Martin died in the year 2000 in Portland, Oregon from cancer. So the living suspect that they are looking at is not Martin, which brings in the question of maybe Martin and John had absolutely nothing to do with it. The fact that they now have a living suspect is a huge, huge breakthrough. And because of this, authorities are now certain that they will be able to solve this case. Sheila continues to work with the authorities to try and solve this case and bring justice to her family, as well as Dana's family. Authorities have said, quote, there are persons of interest still living who knew or who participated in this crime and should now be worried. End quote. 
So what are your guys' thoughts? Do you think that Martin and John are responsible? DNA doesn't lie, and I will be honest, up until hearing about the case reopening and the discovery of the new DNA, I was pretty set in stone that Martin was responsible. It makes sense. If he was having an affair with Sue and Sue threatened to come forward, or if Martin found out that he was trying to get Sue to leave him, he could have definitely tried and lashed out onto Sue. But now I think there might be something way different going on here. If Martin was responsible, I think authorities would have come forward and said so by now. But regardless, what do you think? So, you guys, that was the last and final episode of Halloween. It feels so weird to be saying that. I feel like I don't know what to do after I sign off here because I've been so invested in Halloween for the past few weeks. We will still be back next week for our regular scheduled programming for our Wednesday episodes, so make sure you subscribe. That way you never miss an episode. I hope you guys enjoyed Halloween as much as I did, and I hope that we're able to continue this tradition here on Killer Instinct. Doing Halloween again this year just made me feel so grateful for you guys and so grateful that you listened to these episodes and so grateful that we're able to have a community on here where we can continue to keep the conversation going on these cases. So thank you so much for listening and for continuing to be here and for subscribing and all of that. So with that being said, you guys, that is all for me today. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah. I'm your host of Killer Instinct. I'll be back next week for a brand new episode. And until then, happy Halloween and stay safe.